So we went from the roaring dinosaur to that. A little bit of a change for you. Uh, the reason we're doing a bumper like that is to get us in the mood for a really um, challenging section of scripture that we're going to be rolling over the next four weeks. Uh, if you are a Bible reader and you've read through the Old Testament before, you will know that the good majority of the Old Testament is bleak and dark and gloomy. But of course, there is hope on the horizon, right? Jesus is introduced in Matthew, and everything begins to change. So we are going to get to that point in the story, but we are getting to that point of the larger grand story where everything begins to go wrong. And so bear with us here as we get through this story. We are in a 14-week-long journey through the biblical narrative. The reason we're doing a series like this is because I think a lot of people know some stories in the Bible, but not a lot of people know the story of the Bible. And there's a big difference in that. And a lot of people know just enough stories in the Bible to believe they have credence to dismiss the whole story of Scripture. Today is one of those stories that a lot of people read, and a lot of people think they know, and they dismiss all of Scripture because of what this story is about. We're talking about how God called his people to go into this promised land and extinguish all of the people who were currently living there. In fact, Richard Dawkins, he's a leading uh, scholar in the New Atheist Movement, said this regarding these stories in Scripture. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sodomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I'm not for certain, but I think he has an issue with the God of what he interprets as the God of the Old Testament. Um, so what do you say to something like this? Does somebody else want to preach, by the way, this morning? Because I'm not sure if, uh, no? Okay. We're talking grand narrative in hopes that as you understand the grander story of Scripture, you will understand that people like Richard Dawkins just do not understand what God is trying to accomplish. If you could understand the whole story of Scripture, then I think you would understand that this certainly is not true of who God is. And today we're starting phase two of the story. And because it's a story, I encourage you to go back and listen to, to messages that maybe you weren't able to listen to uh, in the past. You can always catch up on our app or on our webpage or by subscribing to our podcast. I'd certainly encourage you to do that each week if you're not able to um, be here present on Sunday mornings. But today we are starting our second phase, Tasteless. You see, Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth. They were supposed to be the, um, the taste and the preservative to the earth. Those were two primary functions of salt in ancient times. And they failed miserably at those two functions. And so Tasteless, I think, is an appropriate title for this because we're going to see time and time again how Israel failed to be the salt of the earth. Let me go back and recap where we've been before we take the next step in the story. In Genesis 1, we learned that God has taken the chaos and the craziness that is uh, seen in his beautiful creation, and he is taking it somewhere. He's progressing creation. He's organizing everything that he sees as wrong. He's making something productive and beautiful out of it. And the pinnacle of the story, he creates humanity in his image to represent him and to be like him. And now part of this representing God to the earth is to co-rule and to co-labor alongside God. We too are to take our creative capacities and bring the earth as we see it somewhere 
beautiful. We are to progress creation as well. But a creature bent on chaos slithers his way into the progress and convinces the first humans that God just isn't being honest with them, that his intentions are not true, and that they shouldn't have to labor alongside God when they could sit on the throne. Why take orders when you can give orders? Why take orders from God? Why co-labor when you can be the one on the throne, when you can be king, when you can make the decisions? And so Adam and Eve are convinced They abandon God's vocation on their life, and they decide to go in their own direction. And they immediately experience what life is now going to be like now that they've walked away from the author of life. Immediately begin to experience the the chaos that now floods their own life. They have abandoned love for God. They've abandoned the very author of life himself, and so they experience the horror. They begin tearing each other apart. If you've ever read Genesis 3, go back and read it. You'll see how they threw each other under the bus and blamed each other, and they could not have cared less for the other person within their midst. They just didn't care about other people. They're only self-consumed. And not only that, but their labor is no longer meaningful, and their labor is now painful, and their relationship to their work is now strained. And so they're weighed down with this guilt and this burden of shame Man, life just is not what God had intended it to be. And here at the very beginning, I think we learn of something exceptionally important, that God actually designed us to live in right relationship with him. He has established parameters of what it means to be in relationship with him because when life is lived within those parameters, then life works well. It functions rightly and things go beautifully. It's actually what it means to be human, is to be in a love relationship with God and applying that love relationship to other people. But whenever we step outside of the parameters of what it means to be in relationship with God, we will always end up hurt. And not only that, we will always end up hurting others. And you're going to hear that a lot this morning because this is a foundational principle that we must wrap our head around. Whenever we step outside of our relationship with God, we are always going to end up hurt ourselves. We're always going to end up hurting other people. And you know this, I think, because you've experienced this. You've been on both sides of this, I think. We all have. It's part of what this experience upon this planet is about. And it breaks my heart that our world and our society is what it is. And the more godless we become, I think, the, the, the further away we get from God, the longer we stay outside the parameters of right relationship within, the more painful each of our experiences upon this planet is going to be. And the more painful our society is going to be as a whole. But God says here at the very beginning, he he looks down uh, into this mess and he says, I'm going to fix it, but I'm going to fix it through humans. The very ones who screwed it up are going to be the ones who fix it. And we see this time and time again, that God does good for one person so that through that person he can do good for many. That's how God has chosen to work. He's going to use humans. And of course, Jesus is a human, by the way, so he uses that that, that avenue, that venue to cure humanity. And so God looks into the relational pain and the vocational pain and how skewed and twisted his creation project has become and how death is being embodied in marriages and child-parent relationships and co-working relationships and neighborly relationships and sibling, sibling rivalries and how selfishness and pride have won and is victorious and people are hurt and bruised by one another. You guys ever experienced that before? And so much of the tragedy that we're talking about are because people have chosen to hurt people. Part of the, so much of the tragedy you experience upon this planet is because someone has chosen to hurt you or you've chosen to hurt others. Because every single time that we step outside of a love relationship with God, we end up hurt. And we end up hurting others. It's just how it works. 
And so God looks at how the world has decaying and, and gone to ruin, and he says, I'm going to put all of this death that I see before me, I'm going to put it to death. You see, from day one, God is in the business of putting death to death. In some regards, that summarizes the whole story. God is looking at all the brokenness and all the chaos and everything that has gone wrong with his beautiful creation project, and he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to put all the death to death. And so the story continues. The population of the earth increased as the remnant of people that had this remnant of humility about them abandoned that humility, that remnant of humility as they pursue lust for women, and uh, women are idolized and abused, but God looks upon the earth and how prideful and selfish the earth had become. And he says that when things go unchecked, when pride runs rampant, when selfishness is just given the permission to thrive within a society, it will always destroy itself and it'll always destroy everything around them because what happens when you step outside of right relationship with God, you always hurt and you always end up hurting others. And not only that, but you end up destroyed, and then you end up destroying everything around you. And so please understand this in your own life, how important this is, right? This destruction takes place in individuals, and it takes place in relationships, and it takes place in households. When it is left unchecked, it can even destroy entire societies. And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. That every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil all of the time. The poetic of this, of the, the, the Hebrew of this verse is very poetic, in fact. Uh, it, it's basically saying that the humanity had become so corrupt, right? They had stepped outside of right relationship with God, and they had ventured so far out that not only were they hurting themselves and destroying themselves, but they were destroying everything around them. Death was all that God saw, and so what does God do? He puts death to death. But there was one man who still had some remnant of a humble attitude. It wasn't that Noah was a good man or a righteous man. It's that he was contrite. He had some humility about him. And so we see immediately in this story that another key principle of, of how God interacts with humanity, that God will always preserve life where life is found. Yes, God will put death to death, but he will always preserve life where life can be found. And so most of us probably know the story of the flood. A flood comes, and death is put to death. Noah gets off the boat with his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, and there are eight people total. And from these eight people, humanity restarts. And so God comes to these eight people, and he says, now I establish my covenant with you. And so God is entering into a formal relationship with these people, but not only with these people, with your descendants after you. And so it's not just you, it's with everybody who is going to be on the earth. I'm entering into a formal relationship with you. In other words, everybody is responsible to God, and everybody is responsible to God. Because God has set up everyone within the parameters of a covenant relationship. And when you stay within the parameters of a right relationship with God, loving Him and loving others, then life works well. And things are beautiful. But when you step outside of the parameters of right relationship with God, you always end up hurt, and you always end up hurting others. You always end up destroying yourself, and you always end up casting destruction upon everything else. You see, about 10 minutes after God said all this relationship talk, one of Noah's sons, his name is Ham, decides to step outside right relationship with God. He ventures out on his own, and he begins to live selfishly, and he lets his prideful heart consume him. He begins publicly shaming his father. 
And his father, Noah, responds by saying, Cursed be Canaan. Seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? But Canaan was Ham's son. Now, Noah isn't putting a spell on Ham and his children. He's simply stating an observation. And that's really what curses and blessings were. They're observations from a father primarily who looked at the qualities and the characteristics of their children and they stated the possibilities of the future. Like, I know who you are, right? He would look at your, your son and you say, I know who you are. I know your qualities. I know your, your characteristics. This is who I foresee you to become in the future. That's what a curse was. And in this case, it wasn't good, right? Because he was hardened and he was selfish and he was full of pride. And so Noah looks at him and he says, man, you've stepped so far outside of right relationship with God. And every time you do that, you're going to end up hurt and you're going to end up hurting others. And I see that you are then going to pass this quality down onto your children. Cursed be Canaan, your child. And isn't it obvious? I mean, we kind of alluded to this already this morning, that children learn what it means to be human from their parents. I mean, I really hope you understand that this morning because I think Emily is absolutely right that we will be the ones who change before our children change. We are the chief educators. We are the chief influencers of our children. And so if our children are unkind and they curse all the time and they're disrespectful to their authorities, then the person that we need to look at first is ourselves because the children are a reflection of their parents. And so if you don't like what you see in your child, check your heart first. Address what's going on in your own life and then address what's going on in your child's life. So please understand how important this is as the narrative continues. Right? Ham has stepped outside of the parameters of a right relationship with God and every time you do that, you're going to end up hurt and you're going to end up hurting others and you're drifting away. Noah is telling Ham, from your responsibility before God, and it's only natural then that your children are going to look to you to see what it means to be human, and they're going to then do the same. And your descendants are going to learn from you how to live their life. And so your unchecked, hardened selfishness is going to create a people who show no concern for one another, who only care for themselves and their own advancement, and they destroy each other at the same time as they destroy themselves. You see, Ham, you are creating an entire people, an entire nation, an entire world around you that is only going to be self-interested and self-seeking just as you are. And so Ham has some children. The sons of Ham are Cush, that's Egypt, Mezraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush was the father of Nimrod. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. From that land, he went on to Syria where he built Nineveh. Mizraim was the father of the Chalcedites, from whom the Philistines came. Canaan was the father of Sidon, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gershites. For those of you who have ever read the Old Testament, you may know that these are the families and the nations that Israel has a problem with for the entire rest of the story. These are the people who are so hardened in their selfish pursuits and their self-reigning hearts. These are the people who have abandoned God's ways and stepped so far outside parameters of what it means to be in right relationship with God that they are completely hardened that now Israel has to go and deal with for the rest of the story. And so one day God approaches Abraham, a descendant of Noah's son Shem, the man he promised through whom he would make the whole world happy again. And he shows him the land of the Canaanites, the the people who are hardened and and opposed to God. And he says this, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, that's Egypt, that's the story of the Exodus, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generations, your descendants will come back here 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So why couldn't God have just raised up an army right there with Abraham and, and went in and destroyed the nations right there? Why do you have to wait 400 years? It's because as, as much as Richard Dawkins would like us to believe, God is not unjust. God is not bloodthirsty. He is not a genocidal ethnic cleanser. Quite the contrary, actually. God is preserving life where life can be found. He's looking at the life that is still preserved within the Amorites, and he said, I will not eradicate the death because there is still life. I'm preserving life where life can be found. And right here, we understand a very key principle of the nature of love, in fact. That love gets uncomfortable so another might be comfortable. That love suffers pain so another's pain is lessened. That love gives so another might receive. That love dies so another might live. I mean, we have an understanding of what love is in our culture, and my friends, this is not it. This is not the love of the American way. But this is the love of God. A love that dies so another might live. That is the very essence, and the greatest example of that is Jesus Christ, of course. He dies so that we might have his life. And God is looking at the Amorites, and he says, my people's displeasure is for your benefit. It's because I love you, Amorites, that I'm giving you 400 years because I still see some good in you. But if at the end of those 400 years, selfishness has completely hardened your heart and you are completely opposed to me, then I will send Israel in as a rod of judgment against you. I will put death to death where death is found. And the Israelites will come and conquer your land and they will put you to death in the process. And so 400 years passes as you turn Genesis over into Exodus and God liberates his people from Egypt and he sets his people then up as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Holy nation meaning that they are set apart, they are not to be like the other nations, so that they can be mediators of God's presence, goodness, faithfulness, and love. He gives them 613 practical examples of what it means to apply the love they have for God to their neighbor. He gives them example after example of what it means to be in a love relationship, right-lived relationship within the parameters of God and how that is to be lived with others. And then he says, be careful. Not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut their asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. You see, every other god, he is saying, promotes selfish, greedy, self-centered hearts. They promote death because every other god demands your religion, and religion is always self-serving. As you venture out towards them and you walk away from me, and the further you get out away from right relationship to me, the harder and selfish pride you're going to become. And every time you step outside the parameters of right relationship with me, you always end up hurt and destroyed, and you always end up hurting others and destroying the world around you. You see, the chief motivation of the pagan people was to please the gods because the gods meticulously controlled each detail of life. And so you had to get on the gods' good side. If something is horrible happened to you or you didn't want anything horrible to happen to you, then you had to get on the gods' good side. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by offering sacrifices. But what happens when you offer a sacrifice and nothing about your life changes? What happens if you go and you offer a sacrifice and the horrible situation you were finding yourself in isn't alleviated? What happens then? Well, you assume that you didn't offer enough sacrifices. And so you bring some more. And this time you don't bring some grain, you bring some drink along with the grain. And then you don't only bring drink and grain, you bring a calf, and then you bring a goat, and then you bring a ram. And it just goes higher and higher and higher until the thing by which you were experiencing that was a horrible mess in your life is finally alleviated. That's the nature of the sacrificial system. Anxiety is always built into it. 
We talked about this a, a few weeks ago, how um, in Peru they recently uncovered a mass grave of 296 children that had been ritualistically sacrificed. And the, the reason they know this is because there was a horizontal slash mark on all of their chests that a knife had pierced their sternum. The leading theory as to why you know, they had this mass grave of 296 children was because there were torrential rains that were falling. The hurricane had hit Peru. And the, the torrential rains and the winds were just tearing their village to shreds. And so what do you do when this horrible thing happens to you? Well, you cry out to the gods and you say, what do I need to do to please you so you'll stop this from happening to me? And so what did they do? They offered some grains and they looked up and the rains were still falling. And so they offered a goat and they looked up and the rains were still falling. And they offered a calf and the rains were still falling. And what do you do? You get to a point where it's like none of these things are working. So what must we do? We got to take something more precious to us, our children. And so they grabbed a child and they said, we're going to sacrifice you to the gods and maybe this will stop then. And so they do that. They slash that kid and they look up and nothing happened. They throw that body into a mass grave. They go take another kid. They throw him on the altar. They kill that child. They look up. The rain is still falling. The winds are still tearing their village apart. And they do this over and over and over again until 293 common children are sacrificed and the rains are still falling. The wind is still shredding their village to pieces. And so what do they do? They say, these common children aren't doing enough. The gods must want our princess. They must want the princess. And so they go and they take the, the, the two princes and they take the princess and they sacrifice them. They throw them in that mass grave. In this mass grave, they found three kids out of the 296 that had headdresses on that were, that were, that were dressed in, in, in the garb of, of royalty. And eventually, after 296 children were sacrificed, the rains, the rains began to stop. And the winds began to die down. And finally, finally, they had appeased the gods. My friends, this is where the worship of the gods will always lead you. Do anything and everything to anyone to pacify the gods and to get them on your good side. And because that was your chief priority, you don't care who you're hurting in the process. You just want your life to go well. And how do you do that? You sacrifice everything in front of you to the role of the gods. See, a nation that worshiped idols will always become entirely selfish and always become entirely self-serving because religion is always self-serving. Religious activity is all about the person doing the religion. And God looks at the Israelites and warns them because you cannot even fathom how detestable and how wicked are the people that you are about to enter. You have no idea. It's beyond your wildest imagination how wicked they are. So imagine someone who is only self-interested for a second. What would that person look like? What would that person do? Only self-interested. Someone who doesn't care what happens to the person next to them. That person might be their brother, it might be their mother, it might be their own child. They do not care what happens to the person next to them. Someone who is only concerned for their own comfort and welfare and getting their own way. What would that person do? Well, they would lie, they would cheat, they would steal, they would falsely accuse, they would even murder to get their own way. Now, we call these people sociopaths. People without a conscience. Now, imagine an entire society living this way. What would that society be like? It would be complete anarchy. And that is what the Israelites were entering into. See, I have brought you out of Egypt to put death to death, and if you would allow death to live, it will swallow you whole, and it will utterly destroy you in the process. See, if you make a treaty with them, the people you're entering, and you allow death to live, then in time as you worship their gods and you marry their daughters, then you're going to become like them. 
And when that happens, dang it, I'm going to have to put death to death in you as well. We'll get to that story in just a few weeks. So the Israelites agree, of course, God, why would we ever abandon you? We've seen what you've done to the Egyptians. We've seen how strong your hand is and how capable you are. Why would we ever abandon you? You are a mighty God. Why would we ever go and worship these trinket idols who have no power and can do nothing for us? Of course, why would we ever do that? And so they enter the land. And they approach the city of Jericho where they run into a prostitute named Rahab. And she says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and when you came out of Egypt. We have heard of it, and our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And so, wow, this like holy uh, nation and this little, you know, kingdom of priests thing, it's actually working. God is going before us, representing us with his mighty hand. People are hearing of the goodness of God and the greatness of God. It's actually working. And so Rahab said, we know who your God is. And we know that we are responsible and we are responsible to this God. And so I and my family, we are going to repent of all of our wicked ways and we are going to turn to follow this God. See, God preserves life where life can be found. He is bent on destroying Jericho because all he sees is death, but there is life within it and so they are preserved. And so everyone in Jericho knew that they were responsible and responsible to this God, but only Rahab and her family showed the responsibility by repenting of their wicked ways. And so the Israelites entered Jericho, they destroyed it completely. And as they entered the city, they were to leave nothing. Nothing that would remind them of the pagan nation. Nothing that might influence them or entice them to follow after these gods. Leave no gold, leave no silver, leave no trinkets, leave no idols. Everything was to be destroyed. But as the book of Joshua turns over into the book of Judges, we see that the Israelites go and they are to stomp out all of the pagan people within this nation. All of the Canaanites are to be destroyed because they are to be God's judgment against death in the region. But something happens, a pattern begins to emerge. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Neither did Eulin, uh, Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Anon. You see the pattern that's emerging here? You're supposed to get rid of all of the influences. Anything that might entice you to follow after these gods who will only lead you to destruction, who will only entice you to leave the parameters of right relations with God even further and walk further away from it. And every time you leave the parameters of right relations with God, you will always end up hurt. You will always end up destroyed. And you will always end up hurting others and destroying others. So my friends, do not do that. But if you leave all of those influences within your midst, then they are going to entice you and they're going to influence you. And how they're going to do this primarily as the story goes, they're going to present their daughters before the men of your tribes. And those men are going to be like, wow, you know, those, those girls, those ladies, you know, they're pretty. And the girls will say, Show, let me introduce you to my gods. And the men, because they're idiots, will say, sure. And over and over and over again, we see this pattern of these pagan nations introducing their daughters to the men of Israel, and Israel being like, okay, sure, you know, lead me wherever you want to go. And it does not end up good for the people of Israel time and time again. It's so bad. 
And God says, you know what, because you left these people in your nation, because you allowed them to influence you and entice you to follow after their gods, and all of the corruption and chaos that comes along with following their gods, they're going to be a thorn in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. And of course, the Israelites begin to weep because they know God is, is, is right. And after this whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I mean, what do you mean that they didn't know what the Lord had done for Israel? Don't you know that the parents are the chief educators and influencers of their children? But the parents were too preoccupied with the daughters of these foreigners and the pagan gods in their midst that they abandoned the God of Israel to pursue all of the fake gods of the Canaanites. They forgot about what God had done. They forgot about what God had instructed. They stopped telling stories. They stopped reminding each other of God's goodness. They stopped drawing people further into God's love, and they stopped telling people of God's faithfulness. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. And for the next 400 years, there is a cycle that begins. The people were enticed by these other gods and the influences within them, especially the daughters within their midst, and they pursued all of these fake gods. And every time you leave right relationship with God, you end up hurt and destroyed, and you end up hurting and destroying everything around you. And in the end, they would come and they would realize how depraved they are and how hard it is and how painful it is outside of right relationship with God. And so they would cry out to God and God would send a deliverer within their midst, a judge. And that deliverer would liberate them from the enslavement of this people, the Canaanites, and the sin. And they would begin to worship God for just a little while until the next generation came. And then the cycle would start all over again. And for 400 years, the cycle goes around and around and around. And then the book concludes on such a sour note, but it summarizes the entire dilemma. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone simply did whatever they wanted. There was no rule. No one cared for God's instructions. Everyone did what was pleasing to themselves and what their prideful, self-seeking hearts desired. And of course, when you live outside of the parameters of right relationship with God, you will always end up hurt. You will always destroy yourselves. And you will always, always, always end up hurting people around you and destroying the very world in which you live. I want to invite Emily forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we sing one more song to conclude our service this morning. You know, it's really interesting. Um, anthropologists and sociologists have come together and suggested that a truly post-Christian nation will in time end up totally depraved. Uh, a truly Christ post-Christian nation will end up totally depraved because the principle of love, right, living within the confines of right relationship, the principle of love that Jesus modeled and manifested and then empowered us to live like, that principle, they would say is actually the very glue which holds a world from completely imploding. It's been suggested then, prior to our technological advances, that it would take about 400 years for a society to, to have some sort of remnant of, of love um, to degrade all the way to the point of you know, sociopathic anarchy. But they would also say that because of the rise of social media, mass communication, television, consumerism, commercials, etc., etc., 
that ideas are disseminated so much faster that they think that it could actually happen in far less time in our day and age. But we think, <laughs> now we'd never get to that point. We would never get to the point where our society is completely depraved like the, like the pagan nations that Israel was going into. We would never get to the point where we're literally sacrificing our children like those ancient nations did. I mean, come on, we're not savage barbarians. And yet every year in our nation, we sacrifice a million children to the gods of convenience, to the gods of money, to the gods of fear, even to the gods of women's rights. We live in a nation that is becoming more and more like a nation that everyone did as they saw fit. And I wanted to quickly show you how they theorized a nation like America getting to a point of sociopathic anarchy. You see, a healthy nation, they would say, begins with a classical tolerance, a classical idea of tolerance. It's, uh, it's understood that people have different points of views and opinions, and for a society to thrive, this is really healthy and it's really necessary. We need other opinions and other points of views, and we need to be able to live in harmony with all of that, right? This is good, and those opinions and views are held in tension, but they're held with dignity and respect as we continue to value the other people present within our contexts. And within a healthy society like this, there is a high sense of morality among all people, a sense of what is right and what is wrong for that society to thrive. Now, we can disagree on the, the fringe elements, but at the very core, there are some shared moral absolutes. Now, what tends to happen in most cultures who have shared moral absolutes is that these shared moral absolutes eventually become legalistic principles, which skews society towards a fundamentalist religious practice in other words, the society as a whole adopts a religion of the nation, at least in name. But what this actually creates is dividing lines between the super-righteous people who hold on to those legalistic principles and the people who can't hold on to those legalistic principles. So there's a dividing line between those who can and those who cannot. And the forced truth that those who cannot feel is eventually challenged by the experience of the commoner, of the person who can't live up to the standards of the legalistic principles. And so a subjective truth then begins to win out. It overruns the heavy hand of the religious system. And the world begins to deny the fact that whenever you make a truth claim, you're actually rising above subjectivism. Do you guys understand that? Whenever anybody makes a truth claim, you're saying that subjective truth isn't actually real, that there is an objective truth. But whenever we make truth claims, we are rising above subjectivism. And the very people who hold to relative truth deny relative truth by the claims they make. Or in other words, in a society that holds on to subjective truth, logic is no longer valued. Because individualistic ideas and ideals and experiences have become a greater value than basic logic. So what's true and right for you can be true and right for you, and what's true and right for me can be true and right for me, and because we hold individualism at such a high standard in a society that holds on to objective truth as truth, man, that seems perfectly normal. It doesn't matter if what I believe contradicts what you believe. We can, we can claim it all to be true. And all of a sudden, then, there is no absolute morality. Evil doesn't exist, and evil begins to be seen as good as corruption is actually celebrated. Maybe some of you saw Amy Klobuchar's, um, she's a senator from Minnesota. You guys, does anybody watch any 
No, you don't care about Minnesota politics? Um, I, don't, I don't really either, but uh, she just announced that she's going to run for president. And before her um, address to the people of the Twin Cities of Minnesota, um, there was a rabbi who came forward to kind of give a, a, a preamble to all this. And, and she said that we should aspire to be like certain women in the Bible, right? She's really empowering women in this. And she's like, there are so many women in the Bible that we should aspire to be like. And here's what she said, and I, and I quote, These women stepped up in history when we needed them most. Eve ate from the tree of knowledge so that we could have wisdom. So that we could take the information that is important to us. You see, we receive wisdom of taking the chance and eating from the tree. Please tell me you see how messed up that is. The source of all evil and the action that disrupted God's design for the world was just celebrated as a milestone for women empowerment. Corruption begins to be celebrated. Evil is celebrated as good. And from there, well, then tolerance is championed as the greatest good within a society. But it's no longer classically understood. It's tolerance that says we should always accept all morals and all beliefs and all behaviors as equally valid to the point that any judgment is to be interpreted as intolerant. So when the CW runs a commercial that says we are open to all, all choices, all orientations, all lifestyles, all possibilities, and we will defy anything that stands in our way, it's celebrated as a great step forward in human progress. But when tolerance is celebrated and championed in this way, when it's accepted and defended, morality will no longer exist within that society. And it then will be said of us, in those days, America had no king. Everyone just did as they saw fit, and everyone celebrated that everyone just did as they saw fit. My friends, we are in the most post-Christian region of the entire nation here on the north, in the Northeast. We live in a world where this is basically what it's become. And therefore, I think our responsibility is greater than ever. Our responsibility to be within the parameters of right relationship with God. Because a, a, a society that champions tolerance as the greatest good just says, you know what, yeah, you guys are far from God and you're living your life far from God and that's good and it's okay and you can live your life out of there. But isn't it true that every time we live our life away from God, not only do we hurt, but we hurt others? And not only are we destroying ourselves, but we're destroying everything around us. And so I don't, I don't want to be tolerant. I want to be loving. And that is our call, right? To live within the confines and within the parameters of right relationship with God because when you do that, life works well. In fact, we are designed and created to live that way. That I would love God and not in a petty, superficial way that tolerance promotes just to say, hey, you can do whatever you want and isn't that loving of me? No, I want to die so that your life might be better. I, I'm okay with myself getting more uncomfortable so that your life becomes more comfortable. I'm, I'm okay with experiencing pain so that my children don't have to. So that Emily doesn't have to. 
so that you don't have to. That is love. It dies so that another might live. And so what is our calling within a society then that has become like this? Well, it is to take the love by which God has given us and say, I'm going to run out into the world and I'm going to embrace the world and I'm going to invite the world back home. Not just to say, yeah, you can do whatever you want, just live however you want and it's okay to live out there where you're hurting, by the way, and where you are disrupting and hurting the society in which you live, it's okay, because tolerance is the greatest good. No, we have a real responsibility as the church to be so in love with God that it just bleeds out of us onto our society. And so I I do wonder, I, I wonder what me, because I am the only one I can control at the end of the day, right? What would happen if I lived within the parameters of right relationship with God? What would happen to my community? What would happen to the world in which we live if we lived within the right parameters of God? Because, my friends, we're responsible to the next generation to live in a love relationship with God. And we're responsible to our children who are learning what it means to be human from us to live within the parameters of right relationship with God. We have such a huge responsibility, guys. We must take it seriously.